Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. My name is Matt Taini and I am the Bicycle Mechanic. So this week we are going to cover two topics. We're going to finish up with uh, a bit of Giro history with uh, Fausto Coppi and Gino Bartali. Do our finale about their historic past rivalry in the Giro d'Italia and beyond. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about wheels and tires. This is kind of part two of uh, wheels and tires, which we started in the last podcast, number 24. So um, let's get started. Uh, We'll start off with some wheels and tires and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, about uh, wheels and tires other than tubular since we kind of kind of covered tubulars last time um so we're going to talk about the other tubes of tire retention systems which are clincher and tubeless so clinchers are the most common type um, it's basically a rim with a hooked bead to hold the tire on uh, when a rubber tube is inserted and inflated to a recommended uh, psi uh, pounds per square inch so PSI ratings are always marked on the tire sidewall with a range uh, like 30 to 65 PSI as an example. Um, any si- anything outside that range uh, is on the high side. Uh, some of the results that can come from that are that it's a bit dangerous um, and it makes for a, a pretty rough ride. Um, and the reason it's dangerous is because the tire can, if you go beyond the PSI uh, label, it can burst uh, the tire off of the rim, which is not a pretty sight. Um, so it's best to stay within those ranges. So on the low side, uh, if you run below the, the recommended PSI, um, you run the risk of a flat or um, just going really slowly. So the flat risk really comes from, uh, from a pinch flat, which is also called kind of a snake bite. And that would be probably the most common type of flat that we see uh, as bicycle mechanics in shops. Um, The other thing about clinchers is that since they've been around for so long, um, there are many different sizes. Uh, The most common sizes we see today are 26 inch, uh, 27 inch, 700C, and today's mountain bikes uh, have 27.5. 27.5 plus and 29er. So to kind of run it down a little bit, uh, a 29er is basically a 700C wheel that has a wider rim uh, and is built for a mountain bike. So of the many of the many wheel sizes, it's important to know that a tire marked uh, as such, let's say it's marked a 27 by one and a half. Uh, in a fraction form is not the same as a tire marked as a 26 by 1.5. So I remember learning this when I first started working in a shop uh, there in Half Moon Bay at the Bicyclery and we had a lot of tires. Uh, We were really, we had a whole tire wall, which was pretty impressive. And I remember kind of looking at some of the tires one day and, and I asked one of the seasoned mechanics, I said, aren't these both the same size? And he was like, nope. They are not the same size. A 26 by one and a half is not the same size as a 26 by 1.5. So tire sizes can be very confusing um, in some cases. And for anyone who's new to it uh, in almost every imaginable uh, case, it can be very confusing. I've often seen 
customer standing at the tire and tube wall and just kind of lost. Um, not really sure which one will fit their bike. Um, so that's where we come in. It's kind of an education thing, right? Um, so uh, the late Sheldon Brown has a great website uh, that helps ex explain rim um, or wheel sizes and give some good info on um, on all of it. So for example, um, one of the things that he'll tell you on his website um, is what 700C tires will work on different 700C rims. Um, so here, um, in this case, it's a 700C rim and a 700C tire, but the internal rim width matters. So that's the, the measurement internally when the tire is off, when you can measure from the side, the, the wall to wall of the rim on the inside. So an example here would be a 700C rim with an internal width of 13 millimeters with a fit, it will fit a tire of 18 to 25C in width without an issue. But if you go up to a 28C or higher on that 13 millimeter internal width rim, you can run the risk of a couple things. Uh, and the main one is the tire just rolling off of the rim uh, while cornering, which I have seen happen. And I have uh, worked in shops where people decided to try different wheel and tire combos and kind of went outside of this range and basically paid the price, uh, thankfully at very low speeds. So on the, on the other end of this uh, example is if you use a 40 centimeter tire on a rim with an internal rim whip width of 17 millimeters or less, you run the risk of riding on the rim while cornering. And that's kind of not pretty either. So, so basically on Sheldon Brown's website and probably a few other websites, there is a chart, a graph that shows you um, which, which tire internal width you can use with which width of tire. And it gives you a cross section as to which ones work. And when you get outside the range, you run into issues like the two examples that I just, uh, just talked to you about. So um, there's lots of measurements uh, given to rims that we won't go over here simply because it's not very interesting. And if you want to learn more about it, uh, definitely check out Sheldon Brown's site online. Um, he gives really good info on all of it and a lot of other bike stuff as well, not just tires and wheels. Um, so let's get back to the modern wheel and tire sizes. Originally, mountain bikes had 26-inch wheels with quick releases, um, 26 by 1.7. And we thought that a, uh, a 1.75 width tire was fat, right? <laughs> Then it went to 1.95, and then we went to 2.0, and 2.1, and 2.2, all 26s. They seemed so fat. We were like, when the 2.2 came out, we were all amazed. Um, sadly enough, some bikes didn't, wouldn't accommodate a 2.2 because they were designed around a 1.75, so there was some rubbing on the frame or on the fork. Um, but still, there were bikes that could use the 2.1 and 2.2, and they looked so fat compared to the 1.75. And we were all really impressed back then. Um, and then along came 29ers. So 29er, like I said, is basically a 700C with a wider internal rim width. And in addition to that, that's kind of maybe a little bit simplifying it. The, the rim is basically designed for off-road use. It's obviously not uh, going to go on a time trial bike um, 
for the road. So it's going to be kind of a burly rim. Um, so 29ers typically didn't seem uh, to work for ev everyone, um, myself included. Um, it's just too much wheel and tire, uh, f as far as I'm concerned, for anyone five foot six or less like myself. Um, so a couple of examples with this, this would be I, I a few years back, uh, uh, acquired a mountain bike that would fit uh, 27.5 plus tires and 29 by 2.2 tires, um, obviously needing two different wheel sets of those sizes. And I used them both and kind of uh, played around with the two different sizes to see which one uh, was better for me. And uh, one of the things that I found on the 29er wheel was that for me, it was an awful lot of wheel to get rolling. And on technical climbs on the mountain bike, uh, like an example would be switchbacks, uh, where I could clear it easily uh, on a 27, on a 27.5, the 29, I just couldn't do it. It was too much. Um, so the 27.5 um, is kind of the size that kind of settled in between um, the 26 original mountain bike wheel size and 29, which we kind of went to, went crazy with for a few years before the 27.5 came out. Um, 27.5 uh, inch wheels and tires are also known as 650B, not to be confused with 650C, which 650C is a road bike 26 inch wheel uh, tire and wheel usually used for a time trial bike um, or a uh, triathlete bike, um, most likely in a time trial bike with a 700C rear wheel. So if you're at all confused by all of this, um, you're not alone. Um, if you're not a bicycle mechanic and you listen to this podcast, um, you're not alone in the confusion around some of this. Um, if you are a bicycle mechanic, you probably know all this stuff and um, are frust somewhat frustrated by some of it, as I can be at times, um, just because trying to relay it to, to customers can be difficult. So so let's move on. And, uh, and beyond the the 27 5 29 and 26 um we started uh, a new fad a few years back it's been a little while now and they're called fat tires so we started using a 26 by 4.0 or a 20 set 26 by 5.0 and then we have what we call nowadays our 27 5 plus which is basically i believe anything over a 2.6 um, tire is considered 27 5 plus uh, so we have 2.8s are the most common in the 27.5 plus and 3.0s as well. Uh, these new fat tires um, were so wide that, with their invention that it include the need to change some dimensions on bikes uh, that they're used on. So we went from 26 inch quick release hubs to 29 with quick release to 27.5 and 27.5 plus. And any tire wider than a, than a 2.8 is considered a plus size, just like I said. Uh, and fat bike tires are not usually uh, wider than they go from like 3.5 inches up to 5 inches wide on a fat bike. Um, at this point, uh, quick rele release wheels are mostly are, are almost completely dead on any given high performance bike, um, giving way to through axles, which is a huge uh, a huge deal. Um, hubs are hollow up to 20 millimeters uh, diameter hollow, and the axle is now um, 
separate with a hex head on one side and threaded on the other into the frame or the fork. Um, this is kind of an amazing thing. This is a, a huge change in the industry, um, which I really at first wasn't sure about, but now several years later, I think it's one of the best things. Um, just uh, as bicycle frames were widened uh, back in the day from 120 millimeters wide um, on the rear end to fit the rear wheel and the gears, widened to 126 and then to 130 and then to 135 on mountain bikes to accommodate for more gears as we're always looking for more gears. Seems to be uh, where we're at now. Um, and when we started using through axles, we widened the rear end even more to 142 millimeter or 148 millimeter, which is considered boost spacing, which accommodates the 27.5 plus tires we were talking about. And beyond that, it gets even a little bit more confusing because then we have super boost, which is 157 millimeters wide. So boost and super boost spacing also widened the bottom bracket and um, from hub spacing from 100 millimeter, the fork spacing from 100 millimeters to 110. So with all these new wheel sizes, along with fatter tires, suspension and tubeless tires, some of the old trails that I learned to ride a mountain bike on are completely are a completely different experience for me now. Um, my first uh, mountain bike was a 26 by 1.95 uh, size wheel and tire mongoose uh, international bicycle of champions with a rigid steel fork chromoly frame 4130 4130 chromoly um, and flash forward to today uh, and back then i think we're talking uh mid mid 80s uh, when i had that bike 1980s so it's back a ways oh yeah i'm old i know uh, one of my current mountain bikes is a Salsa Timberjack with a 27.5 plus tires, which are 2.8s and they are tubeless. Um, so the ease at which the 27.5 plus wheels and tires push through so many obstacles um, that on the 26 by 1.9 tubed wheels made me pick my line better and the slowdown is a marvel of modern mountain biking. Um, an example of the advantage would be riding on Mount Tam, uh, taking a route Eldridge grade um, to, I believe it goes to Indian Springs Trail to make it to East Peak, um, basically the top uh, of Tam, almost the top um, of Tam. Uh, so Indian Springs is, um, is a super rocky section and um, Eldridge grade isn't bad, but Indian Springs becomes super rocky, loose rocks and some rocks that are part of the mountain. Um, from Ross to East Peak is a little, uh, a little over seven miles. Ross would be kind of the bottom of Mount Tam down in the neighborhood. Um, it's about, a, I believe it's about a 2,900 uh, eleva foot elevation gain. Um, so like I said, near the top um, is Indian Springs, a super rocky, loose and solid rock section. The home to many a pinch flat and at least before tubeless and 27.5 tires. So with all of this, I'm sure this is a lot uh, to take in. Um, and there's so much more information. We could talk about this every week for like an hour, but I don't want to put you to sleep. I want to entertain you. So in conclusion, when it comes to tires and wheels, um, 
things can get complicated pretty quickly these days. So if you're a mechanic, uh, staying on top of the new technology and learning about the old tech is all very important to making yourself worth more to any shop you may be employed at. Um, and when I say worth more, I mean, uh, I'm referring to money, of course. So you can afford to buy some of this new stuff and ride it because that's often how I learn about it the best. Um, and remember the designers and engineers uh, come up with this stuff and it's up to us to make it work and in the end to make it better. So I would like to move on now to talk a little bit uh, more about, uh, we're gonna kind of finish up on Gino Bartali and Fausto Coppi uh, from the book that I've read, The Beautiful Race, The Story of the Giro d'Italia. So we're gonna move on now and talk a bit about the history of the Giro. And so 13 months after the fall of the Reichstag in Germany and the execution of Mussolini on the banks of Lake Homo, the Giro d'Italia returned, and with it some semblance of normality. Or, as the Gazetta carefully put it, the people of Naples, Turin, of Lombardy, Lazio, Veneto, Emilio, and Italians, many regions as a part of a single civilization and of a single heart, are waiting for the Giro, the mirror in which they can recognize themselves again and smile. Unsurprisingly, organizing the race amid the ruins of a world war was a logistical nightmare, but Armando Cunier optimistically planned out 20 stages as best he could, and racing began on the 15th of June, a week after a nat national referendum had transformed Italy into a republic and sent the royal family packing. The country was still technically at war with the rest of Europe, so it was an all-Italian affair but few cared about that. Bartoli was there with Legnano and Pavesi, and Copi came with his Bianchi team and a carte blanche to ride as he pleased. Both riders were in brilliant form and their rivalry was already intense before the Giro got underway. Feigning illness at a race in Switzerland the month before, Gino had promised not to contest the sprint as long as Fausto didn't drop him before the finish. Then in a very unchristian manner for such a pious man, he jumped Copi and took the victory. The papers called that year's Corsa Rosa, the Giro del Rosin Renascita, Giro of Rebirth. In celebration of Italy's new start, it could just as easily have been a reference to the renaissance of the battle between the nation's two great sport, greatest sportsmen. Unexpectedly for a race involving those two, the most romantic moment of that year's Giro involved neither. The plan for the 14th stage amounted to what was a, a balsy, foolish move from Cognier, ignoring an official government statement. The fact that one was issued speaks volumes about the social and political importance of the race at the time. The route took, race, took the race from Rovigo to Troublesome Trieste on the border with present-day Croatia, which was at the time occupied by Yugoslavian troops. The city had once been an internal port for the Austrian-Hungarian Empire and, and cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of Italian soldiers in the First World War, and they fought to reclaim it. Under Mussolini, the diverse demographic 
was rapidly and brutally Italianized. All foreign languages were banned. The citizens of Slavic origin were forced to change their names. So when Josip Tito's troops liberated it from Nazi control in 1945, they responded in kind. Thousands of Italian nationalists and anti-communists were imprisoned or murdered, while the Western Allied troops stationed there looked on with trepidation. By 1946, it had become one of the one of the emergent Cold War's most dangerous flashpoints. Around 40 kilometers from the finish, the peloton was stopped with makeshift barricades and Slavic rebels throwing stones. There are several, no doubt, embellished versions of what happened next, but most agree that, that shots were fired and Cunye canceled the stage. When news of the attack and the cancellation reached Trieste, however, riots erupted. And in the peloton, too, there was discontent, as several of the riders were from the area and felt very strongly about finishing in their hometown as part of what they felt was a national race, was their national race. Led by Giordano Couter, a Trieste native and one of the finest riders of the age, a debate began. After several hours of, of deliberation, it was decided that the stage would be annulled officially, but that, a, but that anyone who wished to continue could do so under armed guard. Seventeen bravely assented and were duly loaded up into a U.S. military transport vehicle and taken to the city limits to contest the final dramatic kilometers for the sake of honor and prize money, obviously. Couture broke away immediately and rode into his hometown a hero with rapturous crowds and overwhelming the small cadre of racers who had been co courageous enough to come. Italy's biggest and best love celebration had come to Trieste, to its Italians, in spite of everything. Rarely has a sporting event made a bigger political or poetic statement. Writing in the Gazetta, Bruno Rogli said, The gardens of Trieste have no more flowers. The bells of San Agusto Cathedral no longer ring. The flags of the city no longer wave. The lips of Trieste have no more kisses. The flowers, the sounds, the waves, and the kisses have all been given to the Giro d'Italia. For the two protagonists, the race, race's key juncture came in the Dolomites a couple days later. Kopi trailing the GC after some initial difficulties, but clearly getting better by the day, won the first big mountain stage, attacking on the Paso della Moria. Bartali, however, had stayed with him, and by finishing on the same time, he moved into the Magliarosa, four minutes ahead of his Gregario turn on, turned on adversary. Kopi won again the next day, distancing the pack with a powerful ascent of the Fazergo, but it wasn't enough. Gino, thanks to the work of his teammates, was only a minute behind. Fausto ran out of spark by the final big climb day to Trento and couldn't make an attack stick. Thanks to his wins and the time bonuses they garnered, he was close, but not close enough. Bartali won his third Giro d'Italia by 47 seconds, having done enough in the two mountains to limit his losses to the peerless Kopi. Two strokes of luck also helped. The first was when Cunier decided against having a, a time trial. Kopi was by some margin the stronger against the clock. And the second was on stage five when Kopi crashed and broke a rib. He still managed to win that day's finish in Bologna 
but for the ever-fragile Fausti, pain would catch up, and throughout his career, it seemed sometimes the only thing that could catch him, it was the only thing that could catch him as the race progressed. Copi would get his revenge the following spring, snatching the pink jersey from Bartoli's back with a merciless attack on the Pordoi. But in order to narrate every battle between the two, you'd need another book. And it would only be telling part of the story. Both lost time to the war, and there was an, an age gap, but statistically their encounters ended thus. In events they both started, Copi won 69 to Bartoli's 27. When neither won, the former finisher ahead of the latter, 171 times to 159. Copi won five Giro, two Tours de France, two World Championships to Bartoli's three Giro and two Tours. Bartoli won seven of the races we now call monuments, though he never contested the Northern Classics like Paris-Roubaix, and Copi won nine. By the late 1940s, they had become icons in the true sense of the word of Italian society, of the struggles with which it was grappling, morality, modernity, religion, social change, communism, and the, and the Christian center. For the Bartali and Copi, they were more than bicycle racers. They were an integral part of their cultural identity. Bartali symbolized continuity. His second Tour de France win in 1948 came a decade after his first win record a record that still stands. It was also an achievement that some historians argue might have distracted sports-mad Italy just enough to avoid another civil war. He was the everyman, a very picture of small-town Italy, tough and reliable, and it was so popular among the faithful that his name was invoked by the Pope during sermons. Nicknames are a common thing in cycling, but rarely are they as laced with innuendo as the two monikers prescribed to Bartali. The common Italian suffix asio is often used to imply that something is bad or has a wick wicked side, but also that someone is clever in a sly way. Giannacchio summed up his character perfectly. The gruff, temperamental, and demanding rider with a voice as gravely as a dusty, Tuscan backroads upon which he trained. Not a negative epithet in the country where street smarts and cunning are among the most prized of personality traits, but not exactly high praise either. And then there was the other side, Gino the Pious, which depending on the speaker could be taken as praise for his devotion to the church or a cheap dig at his religious zeal. Though he came from poor agrarian stock, Copi exemplified the new, both the good and the bad, fit, bad of it. For one, he looked like a film star, enjoyed life's finer things, and was often pictured in one of the many glistening new cars that were rolling out of the factories in Turin. But like the country's economic recovery and many of the new moneyed classes, much of it was superficial. He never seemed totally at ease with himself. Copi was at the zenith of his powers in the late 1940s and early 1950s. His performance on stage 17 of the 1949 Giro d'Italia has become the stuff of legend and was unlike anything that came before or since. Before the 254 kilometer stage from Queno 
to Pinerolo that took place, the peloton, uh, took the peloton across into France and over a grueling series of climbs. Madeleine Vars, Isard, Montgrieve, and Sistriere. Fastro was, Fausto was trailing the Maglia Rosa, Aldofo Leone, by 43 seconds. But the race's new director, Vincenzo Torriani, had planned the route with mayhem in mind, and that's exactly what he got. The race left Queno in the cold and under driving rain, with the riders staring dead in the face of nine hours worth of hell. Kopi covered an early covered an early lone breakaway before discarding the optimistic soloist before the top of the Madalena. Bartali was forced to give chase, thinking that surely no one in their right mind would make their genuine play that early in the race's most challenging day. He must have thought his luck was was in when he when he passed Kopi shortly after, dismounted on the side of the road while his mechanic saw to a problem with his chain. But that luck ran out long after when Kopi caught and passed him. They had 190 kilometers to go. By Montgierve, Kopi's lead was more than six minutes on Bartali, the only rider who could even think of catching him. By Sistriere, he'd scratched out two more, and by the finish in Pon Panerolo, the gap was almost 12 minutes. The rest of the chasers arrived more than 19 minutes down. It was a massacre. Then the Maglia was his. Gino was second, but 23 minutes, a lifetime behind him. As his friend Raphael Germanini used to say, you don't need a stopwatch to time Kopi's lead in those days. The church bell tower would suffice. A month later, with Baltali in support, Kopi would become the first rider ever to win a Giro Tour double. He'd do it again in 1952, with a plethora of other titles in between. But the downward spiral had begun by, by then. During the 1951 Milan-Torino, Kopi's young brother, Cerce, crashed when his wheel caught on a tram track in the final straight of the race. He rode back to his hotel, but he was rushed to the hospital later that night, where he died in Fausto's arms of a brain hemorrhage. Cerce had been a constant companion throughout his brother's life, his only real confidant, and, his, and it was something that Kopi never got over. Without his more exuberant brother to write him, he too often lost himself to self-doubt and his melancholic disposition. There were marital problems too. Having married his wife, Bruna, in 1945 and fathered a daughter, Kopi scandalized Italy when he left his family for a married woman, Giulia Occini, who was dubbed La Dame Bianca, the white woman, by the press after being spotted with the Campanissimo wearing a white coat. Pitifully, Giuliana's husband, a doctor by the name of Enrico Locatelli, was a huge Kopi fan and had introduced the pair in 1948. In a typically Italian paradox, adultery was both commonplace and frowned upon. It was also illegal, so when Locatelli refused to play the cuckold, the couple were arrested and Rocini was forced to live with his family away from Fausti's, Fausto's reach. There was a show, a show trial to appease the baying masses now turned on their erstwhile idol. 
and the pair were given suspended sentences, while Kopi suffered the added indignity of having his passport confiscated and his entire disposition reported verbatim in the press. The couple were married in Mexico, unrecognized by the church, and had a child in Argentina named Faustini. And everywhere they went, unscrupulous editors hounded them with no other than the titillation of readers. The case exposed how out of touch Italy's legal and moral codes were with modern life and would eventually lead to change. But it was too little too late for Fausto and Giulia. Copi's last day in the Maglia last day in the Maglia Rosa came in 1954 after the opening stages team time trial. It was the same year that Bartali retired. Copi's career decli declined gracefully, occasionally showing flashes of the champion he had been. And over time, most people forgave his private failings. As they aged, the two rivals, never enemies, seemed to become friends. There was a team Copi versus team Bartali football match in the in Milan played out in front of thousands with Giuseppe Meza, the most famous footballer in Italy before the war as a referee. And in the late 1950s, the pair would become, would occasionally appear in Italian television like a bizarre comedy double act. On a famous program of the time, Il Mouchier, the two even sang together with Copi poking fun at Bartali for losing and Bartali joking about how many drugs Copi took how times have changed. All of Kopi's life had been like something out of Hollywood, or more fittingly, Sinicera, the celebrated heart of Italian cinema situated on the outskirts of Rome. Sadly, it was not destined for a happy ending. At the end of 1955, 1959, Kopi joined Raffaele Gimiani and several other writers for a cycling and hunting trip to Burkino Faso at an invitation of the country's president. He shared a room with his friend and both caught malaria. Jimmy Lee was quickly diagnosed upon his return to France and made a full recovery. Copi's doctor insisted it was the flu, and though his neglect condemned the champion of champions to an early grave. More than 50,000 were in attendance at his funeral, swarming around the hearse as it made its final ascent to Castellania. Italy was in mourning for its first truly universal heroes. He had been, and in the end, something for everyone. A rags-to-riches fairy tale, a scandal, an imperfect man, an impeccable champion. He was, as Gianni Muro, once of Italy's best-known talented sport writers put it, the perfect myth. So that is our podcast for this week. I would like to thank you for listening. And next week, we will maybe talk a little bit more about the Giro. Maybe we'll find something a little more upbeat. I know the end of that story was a little sad. I know I was saddened. Um, so, And we'll also talk next week, uh, or in two weeks, about tubeless tires and rims and hookless beads. Stuff like that. It'll be fun. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.